gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immor immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here is what's at stake the very gospel. The gospel is good news. It is good news that God 
in his mercy and love for humanity, sent a Redeemer who would pay the price for sinful man and would redeem mankind and would call them by his name and gather them into a people and make of them a mighty nation, a people who would live forever and would praise the Lord forever. That's the gospel. It's indicative. It is a story of what God has wrought. But the inclination of humanity for all through the years has been toward what is called autosoterism, self-salvation. All of humanity has wanted somehow to earn their salvation, to pay for their sins themselves, to make an atonement. It goes all the way back to the garden when Adam in the image of God fell into sin and disobeyed the singular commandment that God had given. Adam made a covering, a kafar, an atonement, fig leaves, something of his own making to cover himself. God has always insisted that salvation of his people is by grace. The summary statement of this whole passage is, is verse 11, and it's Peter speaking. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And Peter had learned his gospel at the feet of Jesus. He had preached his gospel with Jesus in the years of his ministry. And then Peter had preached at Pentecost this gospel, and he had spread this gospel throughout Samaria and the area where he went. He had gone all the way. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about the conversion of Cornelius where he went to a God-fearer, a Gentile, Cornelius, a Roman officer, preached the gospel, the gospel of free grace, saving grace, that God has saved us by the merits of Christ. He saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And now we have, after about 15 or more years of early church preaching, we have a controversy. Paul and Barnabas, as we saw last week, have gone through their first missionary journey, preaching the gospel across the Isle of Cyprus and into South Galatia. They've been preaching the gospel starting in the Jewish synagogues. And then in the Jewish synagogues, many of the Jews believed. Some didn't. Those that didn't fiercely opposed Paul and Barnabas. But then the word would reach out to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would believe. And time and time again in his ministry, Paul would say, I'm coming to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. We saw a few weeks ago as we looked at the great passage that talks about God bringing about salvation to the Gentiles, to the peoples, to the ethnic groups, to the tribes, to the tongues, to the nations. It was always his plan from the very beginning. 
He intended for His saving grace to be extended to those who were not Jews. He had called His people for a specific purpose and He states it over and over in the Old Testament. He said, I did not choose Israel because you were great or mighty or even because you were worthy. I chose you by my grace that I might show myself to the nations, to the peoples. You are to be my praise. That's what the word Judah means. You are to be my praise. You're to be a light to the Gentiles. And to the Jews, God had given everything. He had given them the law, the oracles of God. He had given them the temple worship, the priesthood. He had given them all the the fathers and all of the lineage that they had. One blessing after another, maybe eight or ten of them all total, all accrued to the Jews, but not so that they might consume it upon themselves and form an exclusive club of salvation, but that they might be His witnesses to the world and to bear the salvation message to the whole world. But by the time we get to the first century, and actually centuries before that, but by the time we get to the first century, we have this notion that salvation is of the Jews and that the Gentiles are of a different sort of people. They are unclean. They're not worthy. That God belongs to only to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not to go beyond that. And after more than a dozen years of gospel preaching in this part of the world, there were still those who held to the notion that salvation belonged to the Jews. And in order for anyone to be saved, they had to come as proselytes to the Jewish faith, which meant they had to be circumcised, the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And they had to keep, in particular, the the law of God, the commandments of Moses. The men who were spreading this other gospel, which is not really a gospel at all, it's not good news at all, were men who were Jews. Pharisees. The Pharisees were of the strictest sect of Judaism. The dominant view was that of Shammai school. That school said that the law of Moses had to be kept absolutely and particularly in every way, every jot and every tittle, in order for a man to have eternal life, in order for a person to be saved. Jesus had trouble with that school of thought and throughout his ministry. He was confronted by that particular sect of Pharisees all the time because they were hypocrites. They didn't keep the law. They didn't understand the intent of the law and the spirit of the law. And Jesus had to correct them and rebuke them constantly in their understanding. And He said, if you knew Moses like you think you know Moses, you would know me for he wrote of me. And Jesus was always talking about the truer way, the deeper way, the eternal way, the drinking of the water of life, the coming to him. The yoke of Moses was placed upon the people. And the hypocrites didn't keep it any more than anybody else did. These Pharisees were constantly rebuked. They always thought they were upright toward the Lord. Even Paul, when he recants his experience as a Pharisee, will talk about how he was strict and he was disciplined and he was blameless before the law. 
These men were not only Jews, not only strict Pharisees, but they were believers in Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is a controversy among believers. This is not between Jews and Gentiles. This is between Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ. The believing Jews, those that accepted his Messiahship, those that had come to realize that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah of Israel. These were people who understood so much about the kingdom of God and had believed in Christ and rejoiced in Christ and was preaching Christ. But they still carried this notion as it's spelled out, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, added to salvation was not to receive Christ by faith as the Savior of the world and the Messiah, but you must now keep the law in order to earn your salvation. It was a cooperative effort. It was a synergistic effort between the sinner and the Savior. The Savior did His work, but the sinner must do a certain amount of work as well, and there's a, an effort of keeping, and it became a yoke and a yoke of bondage. And Peter says, let's be honest, we couldn't keep the law, our fathers couldn't keep the law, and our grandfathers didn't keep the law. And if you want a transcript of that thesis, read the Old Testament. God's people were an obedient, a disobedient people, a stiff-necked people, a sinful people. They were people of unclean lips. They were the prophets exhausted themselves calling God's people back to the law of Moses and urging them to obey it. But they couldn't and they didn't. And the hypocrisy of those that said, you must in order to be saved was preposterous. Now, what we have, here's the story of the of the the first ecumenical council. In fact, in Scripture, it's the only ecumenical council. But I, I quibble a little bit with those brothers who mention that because the Scripture says it was not only the elders and the apostles that were there, but all the believers. So it was really a congregational meeting. It was more than just the elders and the apostles. It was all the people. And they came up to get a judgment, to get somebody to make the call on this issue. And the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the president of the assembly, and the de facto leader of the Christian church in those days was James. Now, not James, the brother of John, but he had already been martyred, by the way. But it's James, the brother of Jesus. It's the James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament. During his earthly days, James was not necessarily a believer, but at the resurrection... He had come to see Jesus for who He was. Isn't that marvelous? That every believer started out as an unbeliever. Everyone that affirms the faith started out as a serious doubter. Everyone that lives in the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ starts out in darkness and in unbelief. And if you're here this morning and you have doubts and there's darkness in your life, and there's sin in your life, and you know there is, and you're looking for that ray of hope, you're looking for that gospel, here it is. It comes to us in Jesus Christ and what He has done. He has borne the penalty of your sin in His own body. So you don't have to bear it in your body. 
You don't have to undergo the sufferings and the torture that is due you justly. But He has borne it. And He has taken it to the grave. And He has been raised by the power of God. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is our miracle that we preach. Jesus Christ is here this morning for you. He's near. He stands waiting for you. Here's His call. Come unto me, all ye that are weak and weary and heavy laden, burdened down with your sin and your guilt and your despair and your frustration. It's an interesting notion of salvation that developed in this school. Around 70 AD, the liberal party among the Pharisees, the Hillel party, began to take dominance and they began to take a little more lax view of law keeping. Well, let's just keep the law, uh, let's get close. And by 100 AD, following the destruction of Jerusalem and a lot of things that happened to the, to the rabbinic uh, uh, office and the priesthood back in those days, you can imagine between 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, the wiping out of the temple, and all the destruction that took place. And about 100 AD, finally, an Agabah party took over. And their school of thought is, well, let's be reasonable. If someone keeps 51, I'm not kidding. If someone keeps 51% of the law, they're going to make it. And I don't know how many people I've talked to that have basically that view of salvation. I've done some good deeds in my life. I've been generous. I've been loving. I have sacrificed. I've gone to church every Sunday. I've done all of these wonderful things. I've saved the planet. I have recycled. I, you're laughing. That's what, the, that's what the young generation thinks it's going to save them is that they are extremely conscientious about Mother Earth. Nothing wrong with that, but that's those good works. That's those good deeds. And pile them up. Get them all as high as you can and bring as many cycles. Give your body to be burned. Whatever it takes. Be a martyr. Be faithful. Be meticulous. Be diligent. Donate liberally. But then there's these evil things we do, and we've got to admit it, we all... This school of thought says, you know, we're not perfect. We don't live up to everything. We do have a little anger and a little bitterness and a little lust and a little covetousness. Uh, we have not always loved the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. We've had idols in our life from time to time, but that makes a pile too. And let's put these on a scale. And if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we made it. 51%. Have you ever been on a scale to weigh yourself and you, you keep knocking it down, you know, because I can't weigh that much. I, and you keep trying to get down to that next pound. I do that just about every morning. 51%. Good deeds outweigh bad deeds and I've got it made. That is a delusion that is a lie that will send you to hell. Because here's what the Scriptures really say. And I'm going to read a couple of verses from Galatians. And Paul, by the way, wrote 
to the churches of Galatia right around this controversy that had taken place in the church and that they were dealing with in our text in their council in Jerusalem. He says to the Galatians, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ. That's faith, believing. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. Why do we need Christ to die for us if we can save ourselves? If all we have to do is bear down and get serious and do what we need to do to be saved, why do we need the sacrifice of Christ? This was the issue in the early church. This, by the way, was also the issue during the Reformation. The Roman church had taught that salvation was by works. And they spelled out which works they were. Now, they insisted that these works must be done in faith and, and with the help of God. And all of these works are important to include Christ. We're not going to exclude Christ, but it's still personal merit. It's still autosoterism, self-salvation. And that's always been the crisis of the gospel. That's the crisis of the gospel in every heart. We want to justify ourselves. We want to cover ourselves with our own fig leaves. We want to be right with God on our own terms. And the salvation that's preached and the salvation that was championed in the church was a salvation that was by God's grace through belief and acceptance and dependence and trust in the finished work of Christ. So to show that this was the way we found a verdict, James gave a verdict. In fact, that's what the word in verse 19, therefore my judgment, my decision, my verdict is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. That's a word that Paul uses in Galatians when he says, don't let these people trouble you, these people that are teaching you another gospel, that you have to do the works of the law to be saved. Don't let them trouble you. He said, we should not trouble the Gentiles, but rather we should write unto them. And then he spells out points of the law. And they're these, idolatry, sexual immorality, and bloodshed. These are certainly among those that Jesus called the weightier matters of the law. Things that came not just through Moses, but came in the mandates of creation. And the reason James says that is that there is not one whiff of antinomianism in the gospel. What's antinomian? Anti means against. Nomos, the law, against the law. The law is valid, the law has its purpose. The law is useful. We have to have the law of God. 
but not to keep it in order to be saved. We are saved by grace. And then we are given the law. That's the way it was with Israel. God saved them from Egypt, redeemed them by His mighty arm. Then He gave them the Ten Commandments. They didn't keep the Ten Commandments for two generations in Egypt and then God saved them as a reward for their law keeping. No, the law is for the redeemed. And the, the, the classic way of thinking of the law is that there are uses of the law. There are three major uses of the law. The first one is it's the law of God gives us the mind of God, the transcript of His righteousness, the picture of His holiness that He expects all of His creation to abide by. It's what James means here when he says the law of Moses is read in every city on every Sabbath. The law of God goes to the ends of the earth. It's perfect. And David, read about it. God expects creation to work according to His law. It's His expectation. It's the standard by which the righteous judge will judge the wicked. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't do the other. You didn't do the other. You're condemned. The other use of the law is the precious use of the law. It's a tutor. It keeps us until we can come to Christ. The law shows us Christ in every way, in all of His perfections. All of the Old Testament mosaic system, the temple, the tabernacle, everything in the Old Testament pointed us to Christ. The sacrificial system, the lambs that were slain, the drink offerings that were poured out, the incense, that all show us something about Christ, point us to Christ and bring us to Christ. And it does that in your personal life. When you realize that you have not kept the law of God perfectly, perpetually, personally, and you have failed in one place and you failed in all, then you're a candidate for the gospel. Then you're a candidate for grace. But as long as you think you're going to do it yourself through your obedience, you won't come to Christ. Jesus said, you will not come to me that you may have eternal life. And the reason you won't is that you think you're going to handle it on your own. But you can't. You've got to abandon your own efforts and come to Christ with empty hands, receiving that which He offers. And the law drives us to that. Paul said, I didn't even know anything about sin until the law came in. When the law came in, it, it killed me to realize what a covetous person I was. What a sinful person. What a murderous person. What an adulterous person. What a lying person. What a, what a, a, a disintegrated person. I am in my whole soul. The law of God shows me I can't do it, but it opens the door and brings me to Christ. Because Christ did keep the law perfectly. He was the obedient Son in whom the Father was well pleased. He earned His salvation. He earned His verdict of eternal life. So come to Him. Let His works be your works. Let His... Obedience be your obedience. Let His sacrifice be your sacrifice as He stands in your place. By faith coming to Him, believing. There's a third use of the law. I can't help but mention it before I'm done. I don't want you to walk out of here and think, oh boy, we don't have to keep any law. Just believe in Jesus. That's easy believism and that's cheap grace and it's preached in almost every pulpit in America these days. Cheap grace. Just keep on sinning and keep on believing. That's not Bible. 
The scriptures teach us that when we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, we've got a whole new set of values and a whole new set of capacities. And God expects us to be obedient, to refrain from idolatry, to refrain from sexual immorality, to refrain from murder and all of the blood abuses. And he could have gone ahead and listed another 10 or 15 commandments if he had wanted to, but let's just tell the peoples that this is what it is. When you come to Christ, He will take you as you are. But He will not leave you the way you are. He will move you. The great promise of the Spirit of God is I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God's people are expected to obey Him. If you love me, keep my commandments. The law of God is perfect. It's righteous. It's the high standard. It's the standard of judgment. It's the high and lifted up ways of God. It's a reflection of the nature of God. His holiness, His righteousness, His fairness, His justice, His goodness, His mercy is reflected in the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And that's the right issue. Let me say one thing. I've got about, well, I don't have any time left at all, so I'm on borrowed time. Did you notice the, the text that was quoted in here? Amos 9, where he says, James makes his decision. He quotes something that sounds like it didn't have anything to do with the argument. If you think about it, he says, just as it is written, the prophets agree, after this I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. What's that talking about? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's an Easter sermon. The rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the tabernacle is the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead in His, in his resurrection, in His exaltation, in His ascension. He said, tear this temple down, three days I'll build it again. The son of David, Jesus Christ, comes to bring about the righteous rule of King David. And so He restores the fortunes of Israel and rebuilds the tabernacle and the temple. This is all fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says that the remnant, that the rest, that everybody says, of mankind may seek the Lord and the nations who are called by my name. That's, how, that's why Christ was raised from the dead. In order that he might be high and lifted up. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men, all nations, all tongues, all kindreds, all tribes to me. There's no excuse for anyone hearing the gospel to walk away from it. God in His love will take you as you are in your sin. Apply the finished work of Christ to your life. Change you, cleanse you, give you new life. Impart resurrection life to you which Christ brought when He left that tomb empty. And will take you through the rest of this life across the great divide into eternity. And He does it all by grace.